word to us this morning from Matthew chapter 7, verses 25, rather 24, through 29. Hear God's word. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat that ho- on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Oh, Father, we pray you uh, that the person of Jesus would become present and manifest in our midst, that we would hear his voice. We would hear his voice speaking to us this morning, knowing that he finds us and moves towards us wherever we find ourselves. Moves towards us with grace and love and truth and with real power and authority. So teach us what it means to make him the authority of our lives. And as Preston prayed, I pray as well, help me, O Lord, in my weakness to preach and that uh, we might not be distracted by my my weakness, physical weakness. May your word become true in our midst. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So maybe not as much fire and passion this morning. I might have to be a little bit more monotone and I'll try not to cough into the mic. I'll do my best. The authority of Jesus is our theme this morning. One of the founding American stories, you might call it a mythos, and by myth I don't mean something that's not true, but actually something that's deeply true, spiritually true, is the idea that there is a fundamental tension between self-discovery and traditional authority in our life, that that there's a, there's a tension there. And you can go all the way back in American 19th century and you can find it in people like uh, Henry David Thoreau and his book Wal- um, Walden Pond. <clears throat> you can find it in the essays of Emerson. But I actually think a really beautiful example of this and fun one is the recent movie Moana, <laughs> a Disney film. <clears throat> and the film is about a young girl in the South Pacific um, Tahiti or sort of Tahitian, and that's the sort of um, the mythology of the movie. And, and the, the story focuses on a young girl named Moana, the daughter of a tribal chief, and it's her destiny to become, in a sense, the, the ruler and the leader of her people. But she's still a young girl, but the one thing, though, about Moana is that she feels very drawn to go beyond the reef, right? So in, in the South Pacific, you have reefs that surround it, so you can see on the inside but she wants to go beyond the reef and explore the ocean, and that's the one thing she can't do. Her dad says, nobody leaves. Nobody goes beyond the reef. And so the whole tension of the beginning of the story really centers on this sort of forbidden desire that she has to go out beyond the reef. And as she's a little girl, there's this, in the song, right, the the main song is sort of the anthem. It's called How Far I'll Go. I want to just read you a few of the lyrics because it kind of gets at this tension. She's standing there, and she's, as a little girl, and um, she's like, I've been standing at the edge of the water, 
long as I can remember, never really knowing why. I wish I could go and be the perfect daughter, but I come back to the water no matter how hard I try. Every turn I take, every trail I track, every path I make, every road leads back to the place I know, where I cannot go, where I long to be. I know everybody on this island seems so happy on this island. Everything is by design. I know everybody on this island has a role on this island, so maybe I can roll with mine. I can lead with pride. I can make us strong. I'll be satisfied if I play along. But the voice inside sings a different song. What is wrong with me? The voice inside sings a different song. What is wrong with me? What is the authoritative voice that ought to give shape to our lives? That's really the question this morning. What is the authoritative voice that I ought to listen to and respond to and build my identity on? And as Moana illustrates and really, you know, Frozen, pretty much every Disney movie since the mid-90s, and really it's broad in our culture, this deep mythos, this idea that to find oneself, to be a true, is to hear one's inner true self within. It's to be true to thyself. Be true to thyself. And to fail to do this, to just accept your role and play your part, and you see this in the song, is inauthentic. Now, Moana's a great movie. She, she goes out, and she ends up coming back and sort of embracing these authorities. But she's chosen them for herself, in a sense. But the gospel tells us something different. It's, the gospel is not, be true to yourself. Um, the gospel says this. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man that built his house on the rock. It's the voice of Jesus. You find yourself by following Jesus, by responding to his voice that calls out to you, which is what it means to embrace his authority with our life. And the central question I want us to explore this morning is what does it mean for Jesus to be the authoritative voice in my life? What does it mean for Jesus to be the authoritative life, voice in my life? What it, in other words, you know, that image of building your house on a rock. What does it mean to build your identity on Jesus? <clears throat> I think the first question is this. Why? <laughs> why would I embrace Jesus' teaching and authority over any other number of authorities and teachers? And this really is the, the first point about the nature of Jesus' authority. Why privilege Jesus' voice? Why not Mohammed's or the Buddha? Why not my own voice? And, and in Jesus' time, why listen to Jesus as opposed to the Pharisees or the scribes? What is it about Jesus that causes me to take him seriously. And this really is, I think, at the heart of the Gospels and this theme that runs throughout Jesus' ministry, and you might call it the sort of X factor in a sense that distinguishes the ministry of Jesus from all of the rabbis and teachers and the scribes and the Pharisees that came before them. And it's the authority question. I want to draw your attention to verse 28, which is really a, an observation that comes at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's one for many years I've wrestled and thought about. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, in other words, after he finished the Sermon on the Mount, 
After he finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished by his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see, what distinguished the ministry of Jesus from all the other religious leaders and prophets, and there were many, many during that time, was the perception that here we're encountering a power and authority that we have never seen in anyone else, even those who have the most authority and power, the scribes. And it's not just an observation that Jesus, when he taught, was dynamic and spoke with authority as if it was a kind of affectation. You know this where preachers do this. I, I simply can't do that this morning because my voice is lost, where I would get very passionate and commanding in my voice. This is how, past, you know, this is how preachers really emphasize a point. Je- th- that's, not, that's not the point. about Je- It's not as if Jesus is, oh, he, he's more charismatic, right? I think it's actually deeper than that. It has to do with the difference by the fact that all these other religious leaders tribe, uh, scribes and Pharisees, other prophets and religious leaders, they, they might have had authority, but there was a sense that their authority was, was mediated. That, that, in other words, they themselves didn't possess authority, but they were stewards of it. Just like I'm a steward of authority. I, I have no authority. I, it's mediated. It comes from Christ. But when, when they heard Jesus, there was a sense that we're dealing immediately with authority. Immediately with authority. Uh, to, the scribes and the Pharisees were kind of like the Supreme Court justices of their time. I mean, think about this. To become a Supreme Court justice, what has to happen? I mean, you have to be nominated, of course, but you look at the resumes of the people who are Supreme Court justices. They almost all went to Harvard or Yale or Stanford or some, and they all did sort of prestige, they all held prestigious sort of appellate court um, positions or in prestigious law practices. They're, they're, they're considered to be the great minds of their generation. They have authority, right? Recognize authority of cultural institutions. And that's not a bad thing. And that's what the Pharisees had, right? They were the authorities. They, and here you have Jesus. And he comes on the scene and he didn't go to the rabbinical schools. He didn't have a great master. Nobody knew who he was. And he's preaching and he's teaching. And there is a power and authority there that cannot be explained. And it's unsettling. It's unsettling to the scribes and the Pharisees. And you see this demonstrated in the Sermon on the Mount. At the very beginning of the sermon, it says, this is what Matthew says, seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. Matthew wants us to see very clearly that Jesus is like a new Moses. He goes up on the mountain to receive the word of God. That's what Moses did. But in Jesus, he goes up on the mountain and he doesn't receive a word He gives the word. He opens his mouth. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord. Jesus never says, thus says the Lord. That's what all the prophets said. That's what Moses said. See, that's mediated authority. Jesus says this. He says, you have heard it said, I say, I say, I say. When he talks about the law, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it, to embody it. My very person embodies the fullness of the law. And when you read the Sermon on the Mount and you step back and you think about the demands, you think about what Jesus is saying there, and you have this manifesto, this messianic manifesto that is just audacious in its claims and its interpretation of what the law is and how to fulfill it. 
And it's audacious in Jesus' ability to command our destinies. This is not a man with any power. And it's not just talk, right? As Jesus says, as Matthew says, and he had authority. The next 12 chapters of Matthew show that Jesus' authority isn't just limited to his words, but actually he demonstrates his authority through actual power. Right after the sermon ends, a leper comes to him and says, Lord, would you heal me? And Jesus just touches him and heals him. Jesus is on the boat with his disciples and the waves are crashing over the boat and the disciples are afraid. And they say, Lord, do something. And Jesus comes up and he speaks. He commands nature. He walks on water. Men that were demon-possessed and were basically exiles out in a cave because they were dangerous, Jesus comes into the midst and all of a sudden he casts out demons and they're calm before him. Jesus touches a dead girl, a little girl, and raises her to life. He has the power to challenge religious tradition about fasting and the meaning of the Sabbath. He has the power to take a, a basket full of bread and a handful of fish that would feed no more than 12 people and feed 5,000 people. Jesus' authority is demonstrated by his power the power to forgive, the power to heal. See, Jesus' authority was immediate. It was not mediated. It didn't come from somewhere else. It came from God Himself. Jesus' authority, it comes forth from His very person. It's self-generated. It's self-grounded. He commanded the universe by the words of His mouth. And so to come to Jesus, in a sense, to understand the nature of His authority is to understand that we're not talking about just any other religious leader or teacher. We're dealing with God Himself in the flesh, but veiled. John, the apostle at the end of his life in the book of Revelation, has a vision of Jesus in chapter 1 where you get a picture of the veil coming off of who this Jesus is. And this is what John writes. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. On turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Just imagine this. Close your eyes and imagine meeting this person. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice, like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like a sun shining. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, and saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I live forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. See, friends, in the person of Jesus, we're encountering God himself, the very source of the universe, the one who brought us into existence. There is no power, there is no authority beyond him, and there is no authority before him or in front of him. It is total and absolute What does it mean for us to respond to the authority of Jesus? So this is the nature of Jesus' authority, is that absolute source of immediate authority in the universe. How do we respond to it? 
Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Very simply this, to respond to the authority of Jesus is actually to do what he says. And that's an important distinction that Jesus has here. It's one thing to listen. It's another thing to do. And Jesus is drawing a distinction. He's drawing a distinction. It's possible to hear and listen and go to church all your life and to actually not do. And Jesus is saying the only way to build your identity and to respond to my voice in your life is actually to do what I say. To put it into practice. That's the difference. And it's important that Jesus here is talking to insiders in particular. It's true for everyone, but it's particularly true for us because it's possible for us to go through our lives hearing and listening, but never doing. And really, this was, this was part of the problem of the Pharisees. We tend to think of the Pharisees as people who were all doers, doing way too much. They were all about law. But actually, Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees, Jesus says this. He says, and this is in chapter 23 of Matthew, where Jesus gives the seven woes against the teachers. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, right? They sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. They, they really do have legitimate authority and power as those who have been given to teach the law of God. But don't do what they do, their works. For they preach, but they do not practice. <laughs> they, preach, but they, and, and they preach, but they don't practice. And, and then you look at the woes, that, that, those seven sort of criticisms, in a sense, of the teachers and the Pharisees. Jesus paints this picture of, here's the way in which you you can give the illusion that you're actually doing something, but you're actually not. You're actually undermining the law of God. And you're actually keeping those who want to do it from doing it. And the, the deeper point is this, is that what Jesus' authority exercised in the world begins to reveal in his ministry is the deep, deep unbelief of the scribes and the Pharisees towards Jesus, towards God, really. The question they keep asking Jesus says, where does your power come? Where does your authority come from? Who has authorized you to do what you're doing? Is it from Satan, right? Is it from the evil one that you get this authority? And again and again, there's a sense in which they're just running into the authority of Jesus. They cannot see God working in him because he is challenging them. And that root is their unbelief. Jesus' ministry reveals the unbelief of Israel the culture of unbelief that's deep. Friends, our real problem when it comes to responding to the authoritative voice of Jesus in our life is not, it's too hard to understand or that we're incapable of doing it. The problem is, is that we just don't trust it. <laughs> we don't trust it. We don't actually believe that it's good for us. <laughs> It's a deeper issue. And so when you think about this, this question of what does it mean to, for, for me to respond to Jesus in my life, it's more, it's a hard issue. It's I just don't trust him. I don't trust what he's saying. I don't trust that this is the right decision because it's in conflict with another sort of voice I'm hearing. It's, I think, significant that the story that comes, just two stories after the statement about Jesus teaching with power and authority right after the sermon, is a story about the centurion, the Roman centurion, that really illustrates what does it mean for us to respond to the authority of Jesus. Because what the centurion illustrates is that you respond with belief and trust. 
So this Roman centurion comes to Jesus. He has a, a, a servant that is ill. And he comes to Jesus. He says, my servant is ill. Would you please come and heal him? And Jesus responds immediately, I'll do it. I'll come. And the man says, no, 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 no. I'm not worthy to have you under my house. Just say the word and I'll know it'll be done. Because I'm a man who is under authority. I'm a man who's under authority, the authority of Caesar. And I know what it means to have power. And I can say to this guy, go. And to this guy, come. And I know it'll happen. So I know you're authoritative. I can take you at your word. I know that if you just say, do it, it'll be done. And Jesus' response, is, is, it says that Jesus marveled. He marveled. And he says this. Truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. A Roman centurion. An outsider. Friends, the the question of authority in our lives really has to do with what is the fundamental trust of your life? (laughs) What what is the fundamental trust of your life? What voice do you listen to and trust? What has authority? What possesses your heart? See, to, to recognize and respond to the authority of Jesus, it's wrong to simply respond and think that, oh, it's just by the grudging acceptance of the sheer force and power, and that I've just got to fall in line or he's going to annihilate me. Thanks be to God that Jesus does not come to us the way he comes to John in chapter 1 of Revelation. He comes to us as the God-man, the man in flesh, the one whose power is veiled in flesh, the one who is our brother and our friend, the one who speaks words to us and invites us to follow him. You know, what does it mean for Jesus to become authoritative in our life? really compelling. It's not just to recognize, well, he has the power and that makes sense and so I should just do what he says. No. It's to encounter his person. It's to find him compelling and beautiful. It's kind of like falling in love. Have you ever thought about how falling in love is, in a sense, and to fall in love is, in a way, to come under the authority of another person. It's, it's to be overcome by the beauty of another person such that you, you come under their authority and their power such that they could say, change your life in particular, cause you to rearrange your life completely, right? That's power and authority, and that's, that's part of the tension I think sometimes people feel. They don't want that, right? I don't want to be under anybody's control, even if it's something I love. But that's what it means to, to, for Jesus to become authoritative. It isn't simply to recognize the power of God and I have to respond. It's to find him compelling and beautiful. And it's sort of like if you, if you I don't know if you had anybody set you up with your spouse or, or significant other, and they, they tell you you haven't met the person, they're like, let me tell you all the reasons why you're going to like this person. This, 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 and this, right? And I think that's how we, we are with Jesus. And, and that's important, right? Oftentimes we often think, well, you know, actually, you know, Jesus really was a historical person. And really, these b- documents we find in the New Testament are really historically reliable. And really, all these things, and you start, all these reasons to come to Jesus, we call this apologetics. But, but it's actually, when you come to Jesus and you actually meet him, and then you're not, you encounter Jesus himself. And there's a way that all those other reasons were just like sort of crutches to get you there, but now you, you're face to face and you, you're in the immediacy of his beauty and goodness and it captivates and conquers your heart. <laughs> and this is why I said a couple weeks ago, we dare not ever have conversations with people who are not Christians when they ask us about our various views or Jesus' various views on sexuality or whatever without saying, no, you have to come to Jesus and meet him. <laughs> Don't pull apart 
the person of Jesus from the teaching of Jesus. They go together. So to respond to Jesus' authority in our life means that we become doers of the word, but, but this has to be preceded by deep trust and faith when we find him compelling. And when this happens, friends, we experience freedom. The freedom of Jesus' authority. To embrace the voice of Jesus as authoritative truth of your life is for you to experience true freedom. That's the the last point I want to make, and that's precisely what Jesus means when he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The promise of obeying Jesus' words is the promise of having an identity that is secure, that is stable, that is enduring, that will last through the storms of life, and that will stand up on the end of days and continue in the life of God. That's what, it, that's what freedom is. The opposite of freedom is to have an identity that is built on sand. One that cannot weather the storms. One that will have a great fall. But this is precisely, I think, where we kind of run aground as our culture. Because we live in a culture that chafes altogether at the idea of authority as something that's good or something that we would want in our life. Authority is demeaning and it's alienating. It's a necessary evil in the world. And I always think it, we always I think think of authority as a kind of training wheels, right? We recognize that like our kids need authority, <clears throat> but eventually, you know, you, those training wheels fall off and they can ride on their own free. And so in our culture, I think we think that the increase of freedom is the decrease of authority or the decrease of having something outside of me that directs and guides my life. I think this is uh, quite profoundly illustrated and um, something that Kanye West said. You're thinking, profoundly illustrated, Kanye West. (laughs) Wait for it. (laughs) Um, So Kanye West is married to Kim Kardashian. I can't believe I'm saying this. (laughs) Just can't get away from the Kardashians. Kanye is married to Kim Kardashian, and if you know your... um, you know this stuff. He's also, Kim Kardashian is also related to uh, Bruce Jenner or Caitlyn Jenner, who, formerly Bruce, born Bruce, um, transitioned to Caitlyn, had um, gender reassignment surgery. And um, this came out with Kim helping to accept her, I think, stepfather, Bruce, becoming a woman. Uh, Kanye said this thing, and it's been quoted a lot. And people, this was like a breakthrough moment for Kim, and it was also for, for Bruce or Caitlyn as well where Connie says, look, I can be married to the most beautiful woman in the world, and I am. I can have the most beautiful daughter in the world. I have that. But I'm nothing if I can't be me. If I can't be true to myself, they don't mean anything. You can have the most beautiful wife and daughter, but if you can't be you, right? Bruce, if you can't be Caitlin, you're nothing, (laughs) right? See, this is gospel in our culture, this is very powerful kind of stuff. It speaks to our hearts. It's the mythos, right? And, and, but, but friends, this is, this is deeply incoherent. <laughs> I don't know if, you, if we realize this. this is, it's, it's this idea that, I, that my inner voice, my, it, that the, the inside me is really the true authority of my life, that I could be the ultimate authority of my own identity, is just, it's not coherent I can't be a self. 
outside of my relationships. Even Kanye, in a sense, recognizes, like, I'm a father, I'm a husband. You know, if we really believed, <laughs> if we really truly believed that at the end of the day, who, what makes me is who I say, my inner voice, if we really believe that, why do we care so much by what other people think about us? Why is it so important that others accept us and recognize us for who we want to identify ourselves as? The reality is this, friends, that you, you, don't, you, you are not a self by yourself. You always need others to recognize and engage you in that. You always become a self in dialogue with others, friends and family. And it's when you don't actually have relationships and commitments towards you as a son or a daughter or a father or a husband that you have no self, that your life is like built on sand. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard puts it this way. <clears throat> he describes this kind of self, the self that asserts itself as its own authority, as a hypothetical self. And, and here's what Kierkegaard says. I'm paraphrasing him. He says, to think that we are the source of our own authority is to be like a king without a country. Think about that. It's like to be a king without a country. You're a master, but you have no land. You rule over nothing. And your position and your kingdom is always subject to rebellion at any time. It's to build a castle in the sky upon which it is finished. And when it is finished, in a whim, it can be destroyed, right? Because, hey, I changed my mind about who I am. I've been building my identity this way. Now, all of a sudden, I'm going to go this way, right? <clears throat> Friends, this is the very essence of what it means to build your life on the sand. <laughs> this idea that somehow I can identify who, I've, who I am at the core, and this can be a stabilizing thing in my life. It's not. And it really neglects a central truth that Jesus teaches us. Why should I trust my inner voice? Why should I be true to myself? Can I trust myself? Jesus, again, in one of his conflicts with the Pharisees, the Pharisees were criticizing his disciples because they were not washing their hands before they were eating, which was the tradition of the Pharisees. Again, outward purity makes a big deal. And the disciples come to Jesus, and they want to talk to Jesus about this idea of purity and impurity outside and inside. And here's what Jesus says. Do you not see that whenever whatever goes into a man's mouth and into the stomach is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth and proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus is refocusing. <laughs> He's refocusing the conversation about the source of evil in the world from things that are out there that make you impure and sinful and taint you to that actually evil is in the human heart. <laughs> it flows from your heart. It's, it's not something out there that's going to make you a thief or an immor a sexually idolatrous or whatever. It's actually something that comes from within you, from your very heart. In other words, the innermost part of us, of you and me, is the most broken part of us. The real problem in the world is me. It's my heart. It's my heart that's polluted, not just the world around me. And so how can I trust that inner voice? 
How do I know that inner voice is telling me the right thing? That that should be my compass. See, the paradoxical truth of freedom is that freedom does not increase with the decrease of authority. Instead, the more fully you and I embrace the authority of Jesus in our life, the more free we become. It's an illusion to think that somehow with the increase or decrease of authority in our life, the, the freer we become. Friends, <laughs> we're social beings. The idea that you don't have authority in your life, is, it's an illusion. It's like a king without a country. You, it's not a question of whether to have authority in your life or not. The question is this, which authority? Which authority? See, there are authorities that are enslaving. There are authorities that are abusive and oppressive. And the ministry of Jesus really challenged the authority of his day in part because it was a religious oppression to the people. But he didn't say, come and follow me and you'll be free of all rules and laws. You'll be free of all expectations. No, come under true authority. Come under my voice, the one who created you. The authority of Jesus is not like any other authority. It is a liberating authority. Think about this, friends. The authority of Jesus, it has the power, one, to free you from bondage. It has the power to cleanse you of sin, of impurity. It has the power to forgive and to heal and to liberate, to release from the masters that hold us. Hear Jesus. Imagine him speaking to you. This is what he says. He says, come, follow me. He says, come, follow me, and you'll find your true self. Hear my voice and do what I say, and you'll find out what it means to have an identity that's enduring, that will endure for eternity. Come, follow me, because I created you. I know you. I came for you. I came for lost sons and lost daughters. I died for you. I rose for you. I ascended into the heavens. I am creating a place in the Father's household for you. Come, I know you. Find yourself in me. Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Friends, this is the voice that calls to us. And this is the voice where true freedom lies. And this is a voice <clears throat> that we give our lives to. Pray with me. Oh, Father, may we all hear afresh with clarity the voice of Jesus calling us to himself this morning. Renew our love. Renew our commitment. Help us to see that his is the power and that there is joy, deep, deep joy, in responding and obeying to his voice. For with the call comes the power to obey. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.